Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're very grateful for your word. We're grateful for uh, our opportunities in this free country to study it, free from persecution and uh, opportunities for the gospel ahead of us. We'd ask that you would educate us in the faith. In your son's name, amen. Um, having been through a, a series accidentally on the latter part of the Gospel of John, I, I vowed to myself I would not be in John, and I kept my vow. So Easter is past, we're out of the Gospel of John, but that created the problem this morning at 6.30 of what am I going to be speaking of. My wife and I were talking yesterday, I think we were out running errands and we were driving around town, you chat about things that you're thinking about. How, how Christians think, how they measure what they're about as Christians, and how tenuous the effect any of us have on each other is. It's the, I've mentioned it last week, I think, the miracle of autonomy. To be autonomous means self-laud. Nomos is law. Auto, as in automobile. You're self-laud. And there's a gap, air, outside your skin, where your law stops emptiness, and then another person standing over there, and a bunch of you over here. It's a miracle. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a tremendous thing to, to think about God creating autonomy. But here we are, stuck with it. Consequently, getting a message across, here I am, I have a microphone, we can, we can adjust things like volume. Just, uh, I got a little thing, and I don't know how it works. Bill probably knows little diaphragm vibrating against a coil or something. Signal goes through that and up to the snake and the snake goes through the ceiling to the soundboard. Then it comes back with the speaker cable to the speakers and you hear me really loud. That's all we can really adjust. All it does is make the nonsense I say really loud. But tonight you say, well, how does that help? We, we, when we talk to foreigners, right? I don't know if Kenny's ever encountered this or Yuki, uh, where you're speaking to someone who doesn't speak English, it always helps to yell, right? We, we know that. <laughs> With that weird accent, Kenny. With that weird accent. But wouldn't it be nice if you had a microphone? Just a second one here. One for volume, then one for sense. Goes down to the snake and up to the back, and puts sense into your words, and comes out the other end, making clear, lucid points that the person, well, that's really interesting, Evan. I had never thought of it. We haven't invented that. Wrapping our thoughts and our attempts to communicate and edify someone else in a way that actually jumps the gap between us, goes in their ears, and edifies them. So that conversation went on yesterday in some degree, and then we got to Walmart, and it was over. So I was thinking of that this morning as I looked at the word. We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 
We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 because I've backed up to the beginning of the thought of Paul. And I wanted to get to the thought that you see most of the way down in red, verse 18 of chapter 3. One of, probably a verse that changed me more um, in my youth, how I viewed the faith. And helped immeasurably. One verse, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being changed into his likeness from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. That sat on me for decades. So as I was looking at the context of that message, I started to notice that Paul was arguing with the Corinthians about the nature of what we, how we measure this gap jumping. Yeah, how do we get truth across to someone else? My father, who tells me what he thought of the sermon every Sunday <laughs> on the way home, one of his key phrases is not about me, it's about you. Do you think they listen? One of the comments. You can check with him afterwards and say, I listened, Jim, I really did. So what is the biblical understanding? What is the Christian approach? Because so many churches go to seminars and read books of how to create body life and how do you create the right environment in the church. Let's look at what Paul says. When I came to Troas, to preach the gospel of Christ, a door was opened for me in the Lord. But my mind could not rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. Okay? Troas, if you don't have a mental picture of the Aegean, I hope you all do. It's where Troy was, essentially. You say, well, where was Troy? Well, right at the southern tip of, of at, the, at the Dardanelles, where they come out of the Black Sea, um, Troy was right there in the northwest corner of Asia Minor. And then Troas is the uh, Roman Age version of Troy, not on the same site. Interesting little passage here, because Paul had an open door for the gospel. He didn't take it. Because he was thinking about meeting Titus. So he went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumph. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. And with that introduction about talking about how do we get the point across, how do we reach people for Christ? How do we reach believers for growth in the Lord? Certain concepts are thrown at you 
that no matter what, this kind of life leads you in triumph no matter where you are. I mean, is that a come home, the wife's there mixing up brownies in a bowl, you drop your lunchbox, she said, how was your day, honey? He said, well, triumphant. Well, of course, the Lord always leads you in triumph, right? I was, I may have mentioned this before, but I used to speak at conferences back east, and they used to blame me for being too triumphal. Christianity was supposed to be far more broken, you know. Well, whatever you think of the word, it always led Paul in triumph. God always led him in triumph. And then another word, the fragrance of something. I want you to pull in. Paul's not writing whatever word comes to, well, fit. It's whatever word communicates what he's talking about. There is a triumph that you are led in, and there is a fragrance that you exude. One, for one, the aroma of death to death. The other, life to life. So something is in the person, the people who are preaching the word. We're going to get to that a little later when he comes back to it. But he wants to make the point that what this is, is not their handling of themselves into some... Because as soon as you preach a series on... um, We are, but as men of sincerity. Look at the word sincerity. And you almost want all these words to show up in the next Christian chorus. Somebody, I don't know, I have a lot of friends on Facebook. And so their interests appear on my feed. And somebody was into lyrics of praise songs. And I have to admit, sin washed over me. I long to reach through the computer monitor and choke the life out of somebody. Not because the Lord doesn't love being sung to by chorus fashion, but whoever the poets were in these circumstances, they should have been shot like dogs. Because they were putting superlatives together like you could just stack them. You know? It doesn't matter whether it's poetic or not, they're just going to awesome this, you know, hyperbole that about Jesus. I think if I say enough high things, high things will be true. I can't just say triumphant. I have to admit, I like the actual word triumph. They make a great motorcycle and a great sports car, two different companies. And the word for the triumph t-shirt, I have a few triumph t-shirts. It just looks really good. It's a, good, it's a good word all around. So you know, if you had a chorus called triumphant, and you said a bunch of triumphal things, using the word triumphant repeatedly, and then fragrant aroma a few times in the chorus, and then on your brochure, make sure that the front photo of the church probably with a sky, a blue sky above it, sun shining on the steeple, and then you get somebody who does Photoshop to drop the word in, oh, probably, I don't know, uh, I want to be a good typeface, something that, of course, papyrus. Soft, uh, just faded in there in the sky, sincere. 
and the Christian All Souls Christian Church logo right there. We're sincere Christians. You know, I'm describing something that's, that's happening. Because Paul tells you in verse 17, like so many, we are not like so many who are peddlers of God's word. But to be men of sincerity, to be led in triumph, to have the aroma of Jesus Christ of life to life in who you are, not constantly telling people. What's that admonition to directors of films? You show, you don't tell. And you're a little nervous about anybody who starts to tell you qualities of themselves. You begin to think, maybe they're not as humble as they just said they were. Maybe they're not as sincere as they commented. Because there are peddlers. Now, that said, you could become a cynic. Where everything the broader church does, you sit in a small little church in North Idaho and go and grouse together. Those churches, those choruses, those programs, that Photoshop. Some dear believers didn't know papyrus was banned. They didn't know that Photoshop is of the devil. They just did what they thought was going to reach the lost. Dear believers out there doing that. We don't want to turn into the cynical blaming the Christians on all fronts without us just not thinking that... Do we think by doing that we become righteous by being against the stupid? What are we doing? I mean, Paul is not talking about He says, they're doing it that way. We're doing it this way. What is the way Paul is doing it so that we could do it the right way? They speak in Christ sincerely. Verse 1 of chapter 3. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Because he's conscious that if you start to say, hey, we're sincere, everybody goes, yeah. We're not, we're talking about the teaching about this. Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? Now this commissioning, it says in verse 17 of the last chapter, commissioned by God, has a certain quality that the peddlers of God's word doesn't have. You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on your hearts, to be known and read by all men. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. This is where it just quickly descended to not being really nice to us. Suddenly we're saying, it has to be who you are. Your references are not the church brochure, not your pastor's awards, 
not your congregation's um, financial status, whatever you want to think of in terms of that you can write out. Christianity, I've been thinking about this for a while now, how much of our Christian faith, if we stop to say we are measuring this in terms of who we are, really, are you just, you know, and I've said to a few people privately, you're, you're just really awful. When they, 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 they think that they're just, they're, I could just do what I please and go to church and believe what I'm supposed to believe and not do anything really bad. You end up really awful. And it's not the aroma of life to life. It's not the fragrance of God. It's not the triumph of the gospel. Through the sufficiency of Christ, what kind of recommendation? You say, well, Evan, we're your recommendation. If we're so lousy, what kind of pastor are you? Well, that's true. That's true. I mean, I might get a job doing, I don't know. What should I do? Any suggestions? No heavy lifting. I mean, just, uh, um, I could probably food service, house cleaning industries. Because this is where it really counts. The Christian life counts in the life of the people. Not in the declaration of the people. Not in the advertisements of the church or the, or the individuals. But written not in ink. <laughs> Look, I was a graphic designer for decades. I love designing brochures. I use Photoshop. I love seeing multitudes of copies come off a printing press. I would drive to big cities to just watch my job come off the press when it came off the press. It's a, it's a kind of lust. Many copies of things. It's very easy to walk that direction because in adver advertising, you can sway people by telling them because they're not necessarily going, what's that aroma? Ah, righteous people. They're not picking up on the qualities of life. They want to be told that those are the Oh, if they told me they believe in holiness, they must be holy. It says so in the brochure. Maybe not in a tacky font, but in a very well-chosen font. Maybe nicely arranged, and not behind the times by 10 years. But it's always written in ink. We, we, have, a, we have a very hard time. Uh, I admit to you of some of my limitations. Leslie will send me to the grocery store. If it's for more than one thing, I need a list written not listed for me to memorize, written. Because I believe that the hard copy, ever since cuneiform tablets were invented, where you pressed the message into the clay and then hardened it and passed it on, is how you could, how you could give this gap between autonomous agents a real message across it. You wrote it down, you handed it to the other person, they picked it up, read it, and they could reread it. They can look at it again. We know that it's a valuable... Well, the Bible is based on that. We know that Evan wouldn't pick up. He'd forget the 
It doesn't really come out. We were both in Walmart yesterday and we had a list on our tablet and didn't, came, drove out, driving out of the parking lot realizing we had not picked up the main thing we had come out for. Everything else. It's more important for Christians that you have this recommendation of what is good, life to life, written on your heart, not written in ink. And this is as Paul is writing to them in ink. We tend to want to worship the, what is this, a Bible? It's like a, like a ham hanging up in the barn. You say, but it's a Bible. Early in my preaching days, I stood on one to prove to people how annoyed they'd be with me. They were annoyed. We'd rather worship that book. We'd rather worship, get into fights over translation. We'd rather do all sorts, rather than think, do you smell like Jesus Christ, for heaven's sake? Do you have life to life in you? Are you dealing with triumph? Are you dealing with sincerity? Are, is what's inscribed on your heart what God wants you to know? Verse 4, such is the confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are competent of ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. Our competence is from God. What he's doing here is he's saying, your life is a recommendation of us. Our life is the vindication of the teaching being done right. That the life is what counts. Okay, You either smell like life or you smell like death. What does it require of bishops in Timothy and Titus? And why does it require it? Their kids, their households have to be well run. Because you've been to somebody's house where you wish you had special authority to do something about their kids. You've probably seen people in a store. You didn't even know them. You wanted to do something about these kids. You know that people don't have the aroma of Jesus Christ in, you might say, the recommendation where it counts sitting down to dinner with their family. Is it life to life? Or is there just death everywhere? With a kind of a gloss, you know, a, a, a spray coating of Christianity and reasonable behavior with a Bible left out on the end table with a bookmark in it. What do you like? What's the teacher like? Teacher's not going to be supposed to be a teacher of the church unless... His children are believers, they're not insubordinate, and they're not profligate. He, th that's the measure of it. It says in, in Hebrews towards the end, uh, uh, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their life and imitate their faith. The Christian way of this, the Christian way of passing information between the autonomous agents who are in the kingdom of God is wrapped in the truth claim of your life as a teacher, your life as a hero. That's where it has to be. 
written on your heart or not. If it's not written on your heart, you could end up with peddlers of God's word who are so many, even in the time the apostles are running around, there are many peddlers who are going to sell you Christianity or their version of it or their options in it just on the basis of what they can get away with selling to you. But if they're not in Christ, their lives will reflect being not in Christ because it will be death to death. They'll speak all the orthodox doctrines, but they won't be the kind of rejoicing Christian that you could look at and say, I'm going to consider the outcome of his life, her life, and I will listen to them because of that. It says in Peter somewhere, do I have another? 10 the flock of God that is in your charge, not by constraint, but willingly, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not as domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Christianity, the conveyance of truth between you, you have to sustain it with your life. Don't go running off to some apologetic and theology that's going to shore up your claims. Far better to have your claims People show an interest in your claims because of who you are. What does your home look like? Our competence is from God, who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not in a written code, but in the spirit, for the written code kills but the Spirit gives life. Now I want you to think of a subtlety between the Old and the New Covenant. One is written, one is Spirit. Not that writings can't occur in the New Covenant, but it's not rooted in writings. It's rooted in what the Spirit of God has done to you. And as soon as I realize the Spirit of God has not done something to me, as soon as then I start making much out of my doctrine, much out of what you need to believe or what you have to go through, what Bible study guide you have to follow to be fully mature in Christ if you didn't do this, this, and fill in the blanks and answer the correct answer to the correct question. Because when we add, the more you need to have aroma of something, the more um, temple you get because you've got to make up for the lack of Jesus Christ in your life by getting a bunch more Moses in your life. It was a written code. It was from God. But if the written code had been able to make you righteous, Jesus Christ wouldn't have come and died. Now, verse 7, if the dispensation of death carved in letters on stone came with such splendor that the Israelites could not look at Moses' face because of its brightness, fading as this was, will not the dispensation of the Spirit be attended with greater splendor? Think of that. Moses coming down from the mountain. Charlton Heston, if you need to be Charlton Heston, that's fine. Holding the tablets. Hair just a lot whiter than when he went up. face shining 
the Jews going, oh my heavens. I hope that passage out of Exodus is included here on the side. That uh, people said, you know, put a veil on that, buddy. Because it disturbed people so much. I mean, what kind of church? You know I've always wanted to levitate. Because that, well, church growth, you know. He's the pastor that can float. But say we had a curtain here in the back. And midway through the service, doing something religious, I'd go behind the curtain, and I'd come out glowing. He said, well, this is something. The glowing pastor. Well, that's what the Old Covenant was. It had splendor. It not only had the tabernacle, then had Solomon's temple. You read the description of Solomon's temple, my gosh. You get weak at the knees. I mean, we're talking huge golden cherubim in the Holy of Holies. Wingspans, I think, of 20 feet each. Surrounding the Ark of the Covenant. It came with splendor. You read the law of God in Leviticus, Deuteronomy. Splendor. Insight. So guess what? Will not the dispensation of the Spirit be attended with greater splendor? For if there was splendor in the dispensation of condemnation, the dispensation of righteousness must far exceed it in splendor. Do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? Our lives are supposed to be encountering a splendor unwritten in who you are. Simply put, what our life is in Christ ought to be such efficient splendor of righteousness that far and away exceeds that of the external splendor of the written code, the temple, the observances and all. Because it was the dispensation of death, condemnation. Ours is of life. Indeed, in this case, what once had splendor has come to have no splendor at all. Oh, do you think it's still there? I mean, if you're the kind of person that's looking back at the old covenant and go, oh man, that was a good old... They were not the good old days. The, you, you, the splendor of your own experience in Christ referentially should make the old covenant look like no splendor whatsoever. Because of the splendor that surpasses it. For if what faded away became with splendor, what is permanent must have much more splendor. The word splendor, you want to work that into a chorus? Too. We got triumph and, I don't know, uh, fragrant aroma. I don't know. Some of you who can write poetry, bad poetry, do something with that and the word splendor. And the word sincere. Do you think of your walk with Christ as this aromatic glory that you have received from the preaching of the gospel because you believed, repented, called on the Lord and were saved. And your life was changed. Not to be a religious schmuck that's called himself a Christian instead of a Jew, and there's really not much difference other than rearranging the deck chairs, where everything goes, well, we think of it this way. Is your life that much more filled with the splendor of God? 
because this is how it's measured. This is how, how letters of recommendation are recognized. Verse 12, since we have such hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not see the end of the fading splendor. But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Think in terms of Moses putting the veil over his face so they could not see how the glory, they wouldn't be frightened by the glory, and also would not be seeing the fade. If you read Till We Have Faces, what happened when Orwell started wearing a veil? Then the mystery section. Not she was a homely girl. Homely. I mean, you sort of, ah. Even people who loved her did not want to marry her. Put a veil on, pretty soon everybody's going, I bet she's beautiful under that veil. She was the beautiful queen. Put the veil over the fading splendor people stopped seeing. They stopped considering whether or not that was the actual. St. Paul, if you're a Christian, you're listening to St. Paul, he says, okay, I need to have your view, you're an apostle. Um, he says, that has faded. It has faded so far that you can consider it having no splendor at all compared to what we have in Jesus Christ. Because only through Christ is that veil taken away. The veil that obscures the collapse of the Old Covenant. If you're still going to Old Covenant things for your Christian splendor, something is really wrong with you. We are not priestcraft. We are not temples. We're not smells. We're not performances. We're not parades. You know, sometimes you have to do things very unparady. That is a, I mean, I have a microphone, I have a pulpit, I have a cross back there that Jim Belarge was shot, threatening to shoot it before the service. Just because it was a good target, he was talking to me about you know, sighting guns in. He picks the cross as a, well, you can just hit that one. So we, we have that freedom. A lot of it is because we don't think we're in a reverence space. This is a chancel, okay? Or a choir, you can call it the choir. Um, or the altar. Some people call it the altar. Why in a Christian church? We're not offering sacrifices. I know you'd like to see me in a robe, and I have one. That the church, not my bathrobe, but I, I have an actual liturgical robe. It's purple, and a miter. I have a miter. Because the church, you guys, gave it to me on my 40th birthday as a joke. <laughs> I think I still have it, don't I? Still have it. So if you ever saw me in it, you know it's a joke. It's not to make you feel more reverent. But some people still look back at the Old Covenant and say, oh, those were, that's when it looked good. That's when faith in God looked hot. No, Jesus looks great. Jesus is splendor. Jesus is something other than that. Do you still have a veil over your mind? When, uh, even with Moses, 
says here, I took the verse 34 in Exodus 34. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he took the veil off. That's where you, it matters. With the Lord, it matters. With human beings, we're dealing with what kind of, you might say, uh, peddling of religion are we subject to? Or are we really measuring the dipstick in our own lives as teachers, the dipstick in a parishioner's life as a parishioner? Is it the righteousness of God in Christ? Is it the smell of the gospel in your home? Is it the desire to please God? Is it holiness? Do you take the veil off because you know by grace, what does it say? Sin shall have no dominion over you, for you're not under law, you're under grace. Well, we are under grace. Sin has no dominion over you. Run the dipstick in and find out if it does. You either haven't used grace, or you're going to go pretend to be religious. You're going to write up your new religion with all sorts of God words. You'll be sure to include sincere splendor and triumphant. But that's when it gets to the point where I have this favorite verse. Going through verse 15, Yes, to this day when Moses is read, a veil lies over their minds. But when a man turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being changed into his likeness from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now you're thinking, well, there's that, that's where that quote sits. You are being challenged by St. Paul, or at least uh, challenges don't really work. Um, you're being told by St. Paul that this is where Christian communion of idea occurs. It occurs in the joy of a life changed. Are you paying enough attention to your life having changed? Do you find yourself dropping to your knees in prayer because your life needs more change? So petitioning God for more grace because you need to be changed. You need to put off certain things. Put on certain things. Because that's what Christianity is about. Our life together is how good the Holy Spirit of God is going to make us together. That's what will recommend your life to represent this, this ministry as worthwhile. My life would represent whether my words are worthwhile. Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. When we speak these things, we want you to understand the words clearly, that they mean what they claim to mean, that you see that the effect of them is the holiness that God expects of us all, both for you and for us and for all of us. And you would want to recommend it to others as well. But you also know that the peddlers of God's word are busy with underhanded ways, tampering with God's word, cunning. 
years ago, when probably in the 80s, there used to be a, a booklets on evangelism. I forget who put them out. But it talked about if you put your hand on someone's shoulder and bow your head, they're psychologically impelled to bow their head. So if you want to get someone saved, you put their hand on their shoulder, bow your head and start to pray, they will bow their head and start to pray. It's like, what are you, tricking them into the kingdom? You know, a little trip wire to fall into, fall into Christ? We're not that kind of people. We're not blowing biblical interpretation out of the water just so that you can have a verse that supports what you're saying. You don't tamper with what God has said. Open statement. Know the truth. Openly state it. And then you're commending yourself to their conscience because this is all about conscience. Their conscience, their lives are the recommendation. They're the resume for Paul's ministry. Where their conscience sits is where you speak. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. This is one of the dark elements of Christianity sometimes uh, not, in, not commented on. How you think it works. Some people don't want the Lord. How many is up to you in your theology, but some don't want the Lord. And they refuse to listen. And he acknowledges the veil sits on their mind. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the likeness of God. What the, in this case, if the God of this world is the devil, you can hold that viewpoint, if the God of the world is the devil, he is keeping people blind so they won't see the glory of Christ. We are, this is the recommendation, you are the glory of Christ. You are or are not the fragrance. What does it smell like? What does our body of believers smell like? What does your private fellowship smell like? What does your family smell like? Because, it, I mean, it wouldn't be any benefit at all if the evil one blinded people and there wasn't anything to look at. It keeps them from seeing, keeps them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. When I told you back in verse 18 of chapter 3, it's beholding the glory of the Lord that changes you into his likeness. But it's key that it be his likeness. It's key that you be holy. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with yourselves, with ourselves as your servants for Christ, for Jesus' sake. We are trying to see God. We talked about that in John. We would see Jesus. Remember the Greeks? We would see Jesus. It's important for the... Or I have this other passage out of Numbers. I don't know if you thought of it when I was talking about the veil of being lifted for Moses when he go in to speak to God. But Miriam and Aaron are getting a little bit PO'd and power playing with Moses at a certain point, chapter 12. And God calls Aaron, Miriam, and Moses out in front of him. And this is God speaking. And he said, hear my words. 
If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is entrusted with all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth clearly, and not in dark speech, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then are you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? He then strikes Miriam with leprosy. There's a relationship you can have that even Moses, though he represents the Old Covenant, was given the special giftedness that he had the veil lifted when he spoke to God. He got to see the form of God. He got to see the face of God, or at least the spoke mouth to mouth with him. You have the opportunity, when the veil is lifted with you, to look upon the glory of the gospel of Christ which is the glory of God. Do we even think of it that way? I mean, we, we get little gospel tracts or we have little gospel summations. Have you looked for the splendor that is in your faith? That is lived not with adding Old Testament splendor to Christianity, but says this in and of itself. This is cripplingly wonderful. For it is the God who said, let light shine out of darkness. The creator, the God who said, let light shine out of darkness. Let there be light who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. What we are as messengers of this gospel is the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what he's bringing to them. And he's saying, it's not us, it's Christ. Look at him. This is the message. Christ is the answer. And the light in Christ. Open statement. No trickery. And a life recommended. Um, we were talking to somebody who was... Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, train wreck, okay? Not one of you. A train wreck. Decided because he was a train wreck that he wanted to go into Christian counseling. Not get Christian counseling. Become a Christian counselor. His life was a string of calamities. A lot of people think that. I've had problems. I'm going to counsel other people. Don't have problems. Get your problems fixed. This is about glory. This is about the effect of God's righteousness in you. You can talk to others when the effect of God's righteousness in you has worked. So that it will work in them. That you're striving to see your ministry to them recommended by good results in their righteousness. Even though the current secular guru that everybody's following, Jordan Peterson, says that about, don't, don't tell other people what you think until it's worked in your own life. It's got to work. This is about, it's not about playing religion. This is about the power of Jesus Christ to save. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're very grateful. For your mercies, for your power to change us, we'd ask that we would consider the splendor of this message. 
and we consider our lives as a true measure of whether or not we have heard or the veil remains unlifted. Thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.